Welcome to This Functional Life, a show for women just like you, who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, purpose. We're going to deconstruct norms, uncover your deepest desires, harness your physical and mental health, and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what you want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking complex science and making it easy to understand and integrate into daily life. Join the journey to make this chapter the best ever. Let's get thriving. So today's episode is going to be all about how food and food antibodies, food sensitivities and tolerances and allergies play a role in the onset and activity of autoimmune conditions. We're continuing down this road talking about the triggers for autoimmunity and then what you can do about them. Welcome back to This Functional Life. So as promised, we're going to talk today about food and how food plays a role in the onset of autoimmune conditions. If you've been listening to my series, you understand that autoimmune conditions are an epidemic. And there is definitely relationships between genetic factors, environmental triggers, things like toxic chemicals, infections, foods. And today, I'm so excited to talk about foods because there is a lot of pushback in the conventional medicine world that foods do not play a role in autoimmune conditions. And if you've listened to my story, you know that when I first was diagnosed with colitis, my question was if I could change my diet in any way to affect the disease. The physician laughed in my face and told me that uh, colitis had nothing to do with what I ate. So in case anybody doesn't know what colitis is, colitis is an autoimmune condition that affects the GI tract, specifically the large intestine and colon. And so you know, it would stand to reason that maybe possibly things I'm ingesting may contribute to the disease. So let's talk about what's clear in autoimmune conditions. So first off, celiac disease, which is the destruction of the small intestines, is the only autoimmune condition that we actually know the cause of. Specifically, celiac disease is caused by an autoimmune reaction to the peptides or proteins, amino acid strings within wheat, rye, spelt, barley, um, tricow, and it is specifically to, to the gliadin peptide in those foods. And when you take gluten out of a celiac's diet, in most instances, not all, the disease state stops. This has been known since the late 40s and early 50s. And it was actually children during World War II in Germany that were hospitalized for failure to thrive. And at the time when they were rationing foods out of the German population diet, they had removed wheat foods from the diet because they were sending foods to the, to the war front. And what they found that these children actually improved while the rest of the population of Germany in many cases were really starving. When you removed wheat from the diet, these children got a lot better. And actually the early treatment for children that had celiac disease was bananas. They called them banana babies. So the only autoimmune condition that we actually know the cause of is celiac disease. And celiac disease is 100% caused by a immune reaction to the gliadin protein in wheat, rye, spelt, barley, trical, and commute. So how does this really happen? So the mechanism for autoimmunity by environmental factors, which food would be one of them, is often involved in several different things. So one is called molecular mimicry or cross-reactivity. 
And so when we're looking at the mechanism, it is essentially the mechanism of the immune system determining through many mechanisms that the food that you're eating is foreign and treating it to some degree as if it is a foreign molecule or a foreign invader, like a bacteria or a virus. So let me explain what we're really talking about here. So our immune system has military branches. And each military branch is responsible for a different immune response to potential pathogenic activity. In this analogy, we're going to talk about the different military branches. So our immune system has five military branches when we talk about antibody production. In the U.S., we have four different military branches, and I'm going to focus on three major ones today. So in the classic allergic response. So the classic allergic response is an antibody called immunoglobulin E. You don't have to remember that, but think of that one as your Marines. The Marines go in, they do shock and awe, blow a bunch of stuff up, and they get out very rapidly. So the IgE response is a, is a mast cell histamine response that is a rapid onset. So if you have seasonal allergies and you walk outside and you get hit with a bunch of pollen and you start sneezing and coughing and eyes start running, that is an IgE response. And if you're, you know, like the child with a peanut, can't get within a hundred feet of it without having, a, you know, difficulty breathing or anaphylaxis, have to carry an EpiPen. The antibody that is responsible for that is an IgE antibody. In autoimmunity, we're usually not discussing those. However, there is an interplay between the different military branches that will amplify overall immune reaction. So the IgE, we often know. So if you have a food allergy, you know, you eat it, you break out in hives, you can't breathe, you get itchy, maybe you get projectile vomiting or diarrhea, your body tries to get rid of it very quickly. When we're looking at particularly the relationship of autoimmune activity, autoimmune activity involves two other antibodies or two other military branches. One of the military branches is the IgA antibody, immunoglobulin A. In this analogy, this is the Navy. The Navy's job is to defend the intestinal borders and make sure that nobody storms that beach. So the IgA antibodies are made in our saliva, they're made in the intestinal walls, the lungs, and just like I said, they actually survey and, and run along those beach borders to keep everything off of it. And they're usually designed to respond to viruses. So there's some of our early response to viral infections and also things like parasites and pathogens. So the IgA antibody is generally not super active to foods. However, studies have shown that IgA antibodies can absolutely play a role in autoimmunity. Now, let's talk about the other military branch, IgG, immunoglobulin G. That is your army. So the army is going to deploy. So they are delayed and dose dependent. So I like to think of them as sort of this sort of delayed response that is going to occupy. So the army has to deploy. So they need to get all their stuff together. They need to get to where they're going, set up shop, and then start circulating looking for insurgents. So the army is a delayed responder. And it is designed to go fight infections like viruses. But it is the delayed response to viruses that shows up that actually eventually confers immunity to a normal infection. So I'm going to use COVID as an example because we've learned in the, in the population more about immune response and how the immune system works because of COVID than in any other time in the past. When you first get COVID, 
the Navy's the responder. And we have other inter- intracellular activities that I don't want to go into today, but the Navy is the first responder that really starts to fight. So if you do a test looking for the antibodies, the IgA is going to be very high and it's going to bring the SEAL team along with it, which is IgM. And so the SEAL team and the Navy fight initially. The Army gets the message, but the Army has to deploy. So they're going to show up seven to 10 days later, and then they start to respond heavily, and they start going door to door looking for viral load and taking care of it. And then they continue to circulate for a very long time, looking around for insurgents. Now, in the case of a viral infection, that's awesome. We want our immune system to respond with antibodies going door to door looking for any viral activity that needs to go away and responding appropriately. However, if we have antibodies that have now been triggered to things we eat every day or at some level of frequency, that means that the immune system is now responding to that food as if it's a foreign invader. And what that really is, is is a problem because that means that the immune system is always keyed up. It's always sending antibodies. Well, when you look at autoimmune conditions, whether the attack is happening to your intestinal walls, the joints, the connective tissue, the muscle, wherever it is happening, the autoimmune activity is being driven by the Navy or the Army. Sometimes both, and we have some other things like immune complexes that can get into this, but those antibodies are part of the attack force and how they get turned on is through a method called molecular mimicry, which means that when our body responds and make these antibodies to, let's say, Epstein-Barr or another virus or something else, or we're making these antibodies to a food, it starts to attack that particular thing. Well, the body then looks around and has immune presenting cells that are looking around and looking for other places that protein signature exists. So how our body identifies viruses and bacteria is through a protein signature on the bacteria and virus. So think of it this way. Our body has immune cells called immune presenting cells, which act as a doorman. And they circulate around the bloodstream. And whenever they see something new, and that new thing could be a virus, could be a bacteria, it could be a string of a little bit of amino acids, which are a peptide or a string of of a protein, right? Because everything has building blocks of protein. Everything is made of amino acids. And so when, when they are looking around for these things, when they see a string of these amino acids stuck together and they recognize, Hey, I've never seen this before. They look at a, basically a doorman list. So you can imagine a bouncer sitting in front of a, a doorway and li- sifting through a list on a clipboard and saying, I don't recognize this protein signature. I'm going to mark you as not allowed to come in. And then that message then gets presented to these different antibodies to respond. So when we look at foods as we digest foods, so in the stomach, the stomach is responsible for breaking down proteins. Specifically breaking them down, either hydrochloric acid breaks down the meat structure of like chicken, fish, beef. And then we have protease, pepsin, and all these other proteins, dipeptopeptidase 4, that are there to break these amino acids out and break them into small chains first, right? So think of them as like pop beads. So for the women out there that are my age and older, you probably had pop beads when you were little that would pop apart. So as your body digests those foods, they pop little strings of those beads off. And then those enzymes slowly cleave each 
little bead off. And so by the time the food gets into the small intestines, those peptide strings should be relatively separated into individual amino acids. Well, when we look at the case of celiac, which is the poster child for all autoimmune conditions, one of the things that is recognized is the enzyme dipeptopeptidase 4, which we only found about not even 20 years ago, is actually underrepresented in the individuals that have celiac disease. Dipeptopeptidase 4 is responsible for breaking down these peptides, gluten and gliadin. Well, they also break down other peptides like cow dairy, casein, whey, the peptides in soy. So if somebody is a low presenter of that enzyme, they may be at greater risk for immune reactivity to foods. And actually, there's been clinical trials looking at DPP-4 enzymes as a possible solution to celiac disease. None have come out on the pharmaceutical markets, but there are supplemental forms of DPP-4, and we use them clinically all the time, to not allow people to eat gluten, but to at least reduce the possible cross-contamination effect in somebody who may be gluten-sensitive or celiac. So the digestive function inside the gut, specifically the stomach and upper small intestines, need to break down those protein chains, those identification numbers of your food. So when the food gets to the small intestines where our immune system is doing surveillance, we have cells that are dendritic cells that actually send little feelers up and literally feel what's going through the intestines to identify, are there bacteria, are there viruses, are there pathogens, you know, are there food particles not digested? And it's through this process that the immune system, when they see those protein strings identified as a string stuck together still, then they start to identify it as foreign. Once we've created this antibody to the food itself, every time you eat it, that antibody is going to get produced. Well, when the body's looking around and the doorman starts saying, okay, I just saw gliadin. I don't like it. It's got to go. I'm going to attack it every time it comes in. It starts to look around at other body tissues. And through the mechanism of molecular mimicry, it fakes itself out and starts to attack the other thing. So there is research out there looking at molecular mimicry playing a role between celiac disease and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So what that means is, is somebody with celiac disease is more likely to have Hashimoto's and the mechanism is the attack that's happening on gliadin that is also happening inside the small intestines can also happen to the thyroid because the immune system has determined that the protein within the thyroid looks similar to the protein gliadin. So molecular mimicry is a huge player in autoimmunity and we can have cross-reactivity to self-tissue proteins, so the proteins inside the body. So how do we know that this is going on? So when we look at all the different activities, the first thing I always ask is what happened to oral tolerance, right? So we can look at this and say, what, what changed in the last 150 years? So the ultimate question, and I do food antibody testing. I've been doing it for 18 years. We use it in our clinic. However, it, you know, its utility is dependent on the other information that you know, like stool testing and your microbiome and other things. Cause the ultimate question is, is, how did we lose oral tolerance, right? How did we all of a sudden develop a situation where we're not digesting our foods correctly or we're not able to break down these proteins or what happened to our food that has radically changed how it is and how our body sees it? That's the ultimate question. 
You know, so oral tolerance is something that the immune system develops over time. It's why we have recommendations on how you feed your infant over time because you want to make sure that you're not feeding them foods that are highly allergenistic early on, right? So highly immune stimulating. And over time, as they're gut becomes more um, more developed and the microbiome becomes more de- developed, we get more regulation of the cells that actually manage the immune tolerance, right? So that happens early in life. But what we find is we lose immune tolerance to foods over time. I can tell you when I was little, I didn't have obvious symptoms to wheat and, and gluten and gliadin, but I had episodes where something was going on and they would come and go. And as I got older, those episodes became more frequent and more severe. And I ended up being diagnosed with colitis. And then I have also antibodies for celiac and all those other things. So we recognize that there is this mechanism. The mechanism is really, really down to the foods become foreign and seen as foreign because they're not getting digested appropriately. Some of that could be digestive function related. Some of that could be microbiome related because we aren't necessarily just what we ate, but we are what our microbiome eats and then produces. And it can also be other things that may trigger the immune system that is affecting the immune uh, surveillance inside the intestinal walls like pathogens, toxins, and other things. So if we look at this, you know, a lot of people will say, especially um, more conventional uh, physicians and researchers, claim that there is no research behind this. And that is absolutely incorrect. Now, I will say that there's a lot of opportunity for research to really identify because gluten and gliadin happens to be, uh, you know, the food that we know causes celiac disease. But it obviously stands to reason that if we create antibodies to those foods in certain populations that have the genetic risk, that stands to reason that we have other studies that show that show the same thing. So if we look at some of the studies, so for instance, there was a study conducted by Gian and several other other researchers that actually was published in September 2018. And what they found, they found food-specific IgG antibodies, so army antibodies, were detected in about 70% of participants. This included healthy people and people with ulcerative colitis. The number of patients with colitis that had antibodies that were higher when they excluded those dietary foods that they had high antibodies to, the exclusion diet resolved ulcerative colitis symptoms and improved quality of life, and that they found that the interaction between IgG food-based testing and food intolerance in ulcerative colitis absolutely warrants extra research. What were the foods that they found to be more active? And I can tell you this would be true for my situation. Uh, For sure, what they found was egg, wheat, milk, corn, tomato, Crab, rice, and soybean were some of the ones with a significant response, particularly those top five. And that also compares to a lot of other research in Crohn's disease as well, which are both obviously digestive autoimmune conditions. And then if we look at other patterns, when we look at um, IgG and IgA antibodies against uh, foods in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, this was a study done by Frain and, and friends in 2014. So what they found was 
Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and even non-inflammatory controls. So the people that had no inflammatory disease have distinct patterns of IgG and IgA antibodies against food and some microbial antigens. So Saccharomyces cerevisiae antibodies are often seen in Crohn's patients before disease onset. So that means that the body is now seen this, uh, what we would consider a faculative or commensal fungus in the gut is now foreign. And that's maybe part of the mechanism of molecular mimicry. So they found that those microbial antigens are in the serum and the feces. So we can detect these both in blood and feces. Blood testing is more common. And so when we look at the actual antibodies, yes, we see them. And if we look at other studies that looked at um, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's again, this is by uh, Wang and colleagues in 2019. They also found that corn, egg, wheat, soybean, tomato was very, high, very highly represented in both Crohn's and colitis, but not healthy controls. However, I will say the healthy controls showed quite a bit of antibodies to egg as well. And so what this means is, is that these antibodies can be at play and can be associated with the immune response that may trigger the antibody activity that we see in autoimmunity. And so many, many times these get overlooked. And if you go to an allergist, allergists only look for the Marines. They're looking for the Marines only. They do RAS testing where they look for the hive wheel when they rub in an antigen into the skin, or occasionally they do blood testing, but that is not looking for the right group. And often allergists will tell you there's no research that shows that IgG antibodies or food sensitivities, which is what we're going to call those IgG and IgA antibodies, play a role in immune dysregulation. But that's not true. They just don't play a role in classic allergic response directly. There was a really great study looking also at 28,292 subjects, a retrospective study that looked at IgG antibodies. And they showed that 52.3% had mild to moderate IgG antibodies to significant numbers of foods. This one wasn't really looking at a lot of autoimmune conditions, but what they did see is the higher level the IgG positive antibodies were, they had high triglycerides, abnormal fasting blood sugar, and, and were more likely to be overweight than the lower IgG antibody. And there was also a higher prevalence of thyroid disease, either Hashimoto's or just hypothyroid. So ultimately, what does this mean for you? I could go on a tangent for hours about this, but what does it mean for you? It really means that when we're looking at possible triggers for autoimmune conditions, food absolutely should be part of that process. And, you know, early on, the, the testing that was done wasn't very, very specific and wasn't very, very accurate. It has become more accurate. However, I do question some of the at-home tests. I know in our clinic, when we uh, bring in a new lab and test them, we actually draw blood two times on the same person and submit the sample on the same day to make sure that we have matching results, right? Repeatability and, and accuracy is obviously very important if you're going to make dietary change on foods. 
And what we often see to kind of pull this together with the leaky gut and intestinal permeability and the dysbiosis and the other things that are going on in the small intestine is this is also part and parcel when we have dysbiosis and we also have leaky gut. So these things ride together. So if you have bacterial overgrowth or yeast overgrowth, and you've got digestive function issues, you are probably also going to have food sensitivities. And to some degree, it may be chicken or the egg. We don't always know whether one begets the other, but they often coexist. My professional opinion is that it's often the dysbiosis and and dysfunctional digestion that starts the process. And then we have immune dysregulation that starts to occur and that food antigen relationships and food antibodies are the side effect of, of a lot of that activity. But all that is to say, if you are diagnosed or you have an autoimmune condition brewing, it is important for you to identify if you're eating things all the time that may trigger your immune system to be more keyed up. Because here's the way to think about it. Just like in World War II, as you added new theaters of war, so we had the Pacific and the um, European theater. If we add more fighters to each side and more areas, the whole amplitude of the antibody and the immune system response is amplified. And so even in the case of allergies, so simple IgE response, immune allergies, it is not uncommon for someone to take out their food sensitivities, their IgGs, and see their overall allergic response to even environmental um, antigens come down. So at the end of the day, finding out what foods are triggering you are important. Now, there's a couple caveats to this, and this is why it's really important to have somebody who really knows what they're doing really look at your food sensitivities because there are two things that often happen. We have what I like to think of as the trigger foods, things like gluten, dairy, soy, corn, other, other foods that are, are well documented in the literature, at least, at least in some pretty decent sized studies at this point that are potential triggers, right? That they are, are, they show up frequently and they show up a lot in disease populations. So those foods are probably trigger foods. They bring on the leaky gut or the intestinal permeability and they probably contribute to the underlying thing. Often when you run these tests, you'll have what I like to call collateral damage or friendly fire. You'll see other foods that may appear, maybe lettuce, maybe cinnamon, maybe turmeric, because it's something in your diet quite frequently. And because you have intestinal permeability, the immune system, they're seeing these foods before they're completely digested. And so we have these friendly fire foods that often if we can restore function, restore the wall to the intestines, get the dysbiosis under control, that these foods may fall out of favor with the immune system and calm down over time. And when we've seen research looking at rotational diets where maybe you eat the food, but you don't eat it, but once every five days, so the IgG antibody doesn't get made because they're a little bit lazy, that the overall experience of, of the disease itself seems to go down in the studies that they have done. So what that means is, is if you're getting a food sensitivity test, you want to make sure it's accurate, right? So you, I would recommend going to a clinician and actually getting one done. I do question the, the accuracy of some of the finger sticks and other ones. I have friends with the lab companies that I know went to major trouble to try and get repeatability on finger sticks. And in many cases said it was very difficult to get repeatability, meaning that the test was the same every single time when you run it you know, in, in succession, you have to make sure that the test you're testing for is accurate. Um, the other thing is you want to make sure the clinician that's going over that test with you understands the underlying mechanism and how to distinguish what's going on. The more 
you have autoimmune activity, the more likely you are to have a lot of activity to foods. And some, again, may be trigger foods and some may be collateral damage. And if you get a food test back that says that you can't take out, you know, or you need to take out 40 foods, that would be my first one. It's almost impossible to do that. So you have to understand the order in which to do things and how in which to proceed to actually get those foods under control and reduce the antibodies. Because if I reduce the antibodies to the foods, in theory, that should help calm some of the fire that's adding to the immune system fire because I'm not stimulating molecular mimicry. I could, like I said, talk about this for days, but I wanted to give this just small snippet of background about how foods can play a, a role in autoimmune conditions, the mechanisms of food sensitivities and food allergies and how, how to differentiate between those and what antibodies are, are present and how you want to test for them. And then what's some of the mechanism between that and your bacteria and your immune system and the intestinal wall. So I hope you found this valuable today. And if you've never tested out foods, you might want to. Because like I said, if you struggle with weight gain and other things, that really large population study showed that IgG antibodies were higher in people struggling with weight, high triglycerides, and high blood glucose, probably because it's immune stimulatory and those foods are contributing to inflammation. All right. Have a great day. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning into this functional life. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. You're here for a reason. I celebrate your commitment to claiming your youthful energy and stepping into this next phase of life, feeling vibrant, healthy, and powerful. I am so proud of you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD. And if you want a chance to share your story with our tribe or find out more about working with my team, you can sign up at chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. Again, that's chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. See you next week. Bye-bye.